Hello and welcome, dear listeners, to Biopod. Today, we're here to talk about plants. First up, we sit down with PhD student Tara White to talk about her research in beating plants to make them stronger, and what it's like to be a climate change activist and a PhD. Afterwards, it's then over to our very own Hannah Peach about history of whiskey without VE, the second most valuable export in Scotland after Sean Connery. Today sitting with us is Tara White, a third-year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, who's working to improve crop production by stepping on them. Welcome to the podcast, Tara. Hi. From what I know of your work, are you a biologist or are you a sociologist? Like, what would you call yourself? Um, so I call myself a biologist. I'm primarily a biologist. Um, I Part of my project is um, in social sciences as well, looking at a sort of... Um, technology transport for working with farmers. Um, but I, I, I'm primarily a biologist and I do some work with social science. Is that your background as well? Like, did you do your undergraduate in biology? Or? So my undergraduate was in biology with anthropology. So mostly biology again, but with a little bit of social sciences in there as well. Oh, so this project really suits you then. Uh, why did you want to work on this project you chose? So stamping plants. Um, so generally I'm interested in how we can use plant science to tackle some of the challenges in the world today, particularly climate change. Um, so the reason that I was interested in this project is it's, it's looking at improving crop resilience, particularly in areas that will be affected worse by climate change. And also it's looking at how we can harness innate plant plasticity in order to do this rather than sort of expensive genetic work. And this makes it accessible to small scale farmers um, rather than um, to ra- yeah, so the, the aim is to help small-scale farmers to be more resilient to climate change rather than just to help big agribusiness. Good, simple techniques rather than looking at complex genetic solutions. Your research idea, which you're working on right now, where did it come from? Did you design this PhD? Did you work with your supervisor or did you find it online? Uh, so I for- initially found it online, although my supervisor and I have developed it quite a lot together. Um, my supervisor is originally from Japan, where... The, this so the technique that we're looking at originates from and is used it's used wise, widespread throughout Japan is this this technique of mechanically stressing seedlings early in development um, it's a centuries old technique and it seems to be very effective but there's hardly anything published about it so my supervisor was interested in investigating the mechanism behind this as well as adapting it to use for other crops and in other parts of the world okay so from all this you're trying to make these plants stronger made them more resilient what makes a stronger plant and why is that useful for us? So in terms of my work, by s- sort of the word stronger or resilient, um, I'm talking both about structural strength of the plant as well as um, increased resistance to environmental stress. So the structural strength could mean thicker, stronger stems, less likely to be damaged by wind. Um, and I'm particularly interested in how increasing structural strength can reduce lodging. So lodging is when stems of plants are are displaced from the vertical. So basically when plants fall over, which can be a real problem for crops. Um, So I'm interested in in making plants strong enough to prevent this from happening so much. So increased structural strength. But also there seems to be, there's quite a lot of evidence for um, crosstalk between different stress response pathways in plants. And there's evidence that Mechanical stress can lead to resistance to other types of stress, such as drought, and as well as um, pathogen infection and insect pests. So it could be improving the general stress resilience of plants as well as increasing structural strength. 
Okay, well, how are you studying this sort of phenomenon then? Like, what are you looking at to, in order, which are changing when you stress these plants? And what is your key focus here? Um, so, I think we, when you introduced it, you said talked about stepping on the plants. I'm yeah. not actually stepping on the plants, although the original <laughs> Japanese technique, um, no farmers and their families would go out and stand, st- stand on the plants. Um, they now use rollers pulled by tractors, and I'm doing something similar to that in the lab to, to test this technique. So we've got a little robot that pulls a small metal roller over the sur- surface of the soil, and this would crush plant seedlings. Um, and so I do this. It's a repeated treatment, as it would be in farms as well. It happens multiple times with a gap in between. Um, and then I'm studying how, measuring how this affects their growth, um, how this affects plant morphology, development um, and also how gene expression changes in response to this treatment. Why would studying the gene expression of a pressed plant be useful? Like, that seems like a bit left field I think you've mentioned. So this can be useful for multiple reasons so if we want to work out the molecular mechanism for what's causing these phenotypic changes that we're seeing induced by mechanical stress then looking at gene expression is a good way of doing this. Um, I was quite interested in whether plants would become desensitised to repeated stress as this treatment is repeated multiple times and we want to find the optimum number of times to repeat it with the optimum gap in between to be most effective for farmers. So measuring gene expression is a way of seeing whether desensitisation is occurring. If a gene which is normally highly expressed um, shows reduced expression on repeated treatment then we can see desensitisation. And the other reason is to to look for evidence of crosstalk between stress responses as as I was saying. Uh, for example, we found that the, a marker gene for drought is expressed in response to this mechanical stress treatment, which suggests that there might be some um, increase in drought resistance in response to this treatment. Okay. What plants are you using to study this then? Like, are you using uh, barley, maize? Uh, how are you, what plants are you using here? So, the, in Japan, this is um, done for wheat and barley, primarily. I am using, in terms of crops, I'm looking at an Ethiopian crop plant called er- Aerogrostis teff, or teff is the common name for it. Um, so this this crop, we've chosen it because it has is particularly susceptible to lodging. It has very long, thin stems. Basically, it all falls over by the time it reaches harvest, and this causes huge yield loss. So, And it's also in an area badly affected by climate change, which makes it a really good, good crop to work on. Um, as well as working in the crop, I'm doing some experiments in Arabidopsis. This is just so that I can make use of the huge genetic resources available for Arabidopsis in terms of looking at gene expression and developing protocols that can then be used in crop plants. What is Arabidopsis? Sorry, Arabidopsis is the um, is a model plant species. It's oh. a, a small weed. Okay, and why would you use that? So you said lots of genetic resources for Arabidopsis. So there's been a huge amount of work done in Arabidopsis, um, and particularly to the process I'm looking at really from a biology perspective is think we're more for genesis so that changes in plant growth and development in response to mechanical stress and most of the work which has already been done on this process has been done in Arabidopsis so there's a lot of different experiments showing how Arabidopsis plants respond to mechanical stress so it's uh, fairly straightforward to build on that work when I'm looking at gene expression for example. Okay so moving on then from gene expression so what other factors are you looking at which demonstrate the effect of mechanical stress in the plant? Like, could you look at chemical changes within the plant as well? So, as I've said, I'm particularly interested in, in reducing lodging. Um, and I am seeing a redu- reduction in, in lodging in TEF plants, which 
I would initially expect would be due to potentially a reduction in height or an increase in the stem diameter. But I'm not seeing either of those. So I'm interested in what could be causing this, this lodging. So that's the other thing I'm looking at measuring. And ways I'm um, hoping to measure this is I'm doing some cross-sectional analysis of the stems to look at the anatomy of the stems in more detail and see if we can see anything there. I'm also interested in things like lignin content of the stems. Yeah, just to see whether the lignin in plant tissues is increased. Okay, so what's your plants? future plans for your research then, uh, right now? So, in terms of the f- future plans, um, I'm really interested in, yeah, as I, as I just said, I'm going to look more into what could be causing this reduction in lodging. So looking, looking at lignin content and the anatomy of stems. Um, I'm also doing some analysis of, at the moment of how growth changes. Um, so sort of day by day using 2D imaging to, to see how growth changes in treated plants versus untreated plants. And I want to look at cross resistance as well. So doing some assays using drought to see whether the mechanically treated plants show greater resistance to drought. The idea is that at the end, I'll be able to to provide the sort of preliminary evidence that this should go go ahead to bigger trials in the field so it could be applied for agriculture. So you mentioned in the field, like, this is a techniques been used for hundreds of thousands of years possibly I don't know the exact numbers so are you looking at this outside the lab as well like in real world tests so eventually that that is that will happen I'm not sure that will be in the scope of my PhD project I'm doing the preliminary work um, so that we can then go on to do field trials once I've developed some protocols and things like that we have some collaborators in Ethiopia we're collaborating with the TEF improvement project through the Ethiopian Institute of Agricultural Research um, so there's potential to do field trials there with TEF um, once I've got the preliminary data. So that will be really exciting to see. Right. Is this where you start to get the sociology aspect of your work as well? Like you're studying how this technique is used when you step outside the lab and start looking at where this technique is applied? Yeah, so in terms of this, this more sort of social sciences aspect of my work, I'm interested in um, two things really. I'm partly, I'm very really interested in traditional techniques in agriculture that use mechanical stress other than this technique that we know about from Japan. Um, So there's some evidence that farmers in Ethiopia, this is sort of anecdotal from when I've spoken to farmers and to researchers there, they, um, when they hand weed the plants, they bash them around and this is is at the seedling stage and this is fairly similar, they're using mechanical stress. Um, They also sometimes allow small animals to graze on the seedlings. So I'm interested in these techniques and how they might relate to the technique that I'm investigating. And also I'm interested in getting input from farmers into the development of protocols um, for effectively using mechanical stress in the field. There's no point designing something here in a glass house and then telling farmers in Ethiopia this is how you've got to do it. That doesn't fit into the way they do their agriculture. It's useless. Um, So I'm interested in having farmer input into my work. Yeah, so do you rely on a lot of local expertise for this work and like I do you expect to be visiting Ethiopia yourself and working on these plants or do you work or, or intend to co-author a paper with people with, in Ethiopia? Do you mean in terms of the social sciences aspect? Yeah like are you working for research in Ethiopia and furthermore do you expect to like visit Ethiopia yourself and like view your work being done? Um, so I, I'm working with researchers there in that, yeah, we have this collaboration with the Tech Improvement Project and they've been hugely helpful. Um, I will be going to Ethiopia myself to carry out interviews with farmers. Um, I obviously need a translator. They have loads of different local languages in Ethiopia. Um, 
but yes, I'll be doing the interviews interviews myself. Uh, to question, do you need to like? Could you work with someone in Ethiopia already and save dear air models, for example? So, um, yeah, I have thought about this. The from the sort of more quantitative side of the the research I'm doing, working with farmers, this could be possible to hire a research assistant there. Um, but I'm also interested, as there's really nothing published at all, and nothing but anecdotal evidence about this this technique being used in Ethiopia. I'm interested in building up maybe more of a story around it, so having more wider conversations with farmers to get some qualitative data. And I think for this, it's more it's important that I'm there to work to work out what are the questions that need to be asked on the ground. So you spend you you intend to spend a few months there, for example. I think it will be a month. I've been um, on a preliminary trip to meet meet collaborators and have some initial conversations with farmers, but the official sort of research will happen in a month next year. That's wonderful. How did you find it? Like, how was that month? Ethiopia. Like, oh, yeah, how was it? Oh, it was wonderful. I had a, had an amazing time. I got to visit these farm farms in the highland areas and see them see them growing teff in the field, which was incredible because I've just seen how it grows in a glasshouse in Scotland, which is, I mean, we've got it as, as close to that as possible, but it's not the same as seeing fields of it. Um, and to talk to farmers who have been growing it for their whole lives um, was really helpful for my research. That really Has that changed your work at all? Like, did that, that initial experience uh, change the direction of what you're doing? So it was mostly helpful for working out um, how, how the plants should be looking at different stages. What Initially, when we grew them in the glasshouse, they were twice the size that they would be in the field. So allowing me to um, correct the conditions that we're growing them in here so it's more comparable to field conditions it was really, really helpful for that um, and also it was really yeah it was really promising to talk to farmers and about my research and find that they had these compar- comparable techniques that they already do that they wanted to talk about um, so that was really, really exciting. So would you expect would you expect this technique to be implemented for say into British farms for example at some point in the future? So I, th- I think that would be great and I think it would make a lot of sense as well because a lot of the UK has a similar climate to Japan um, in Japan, they especially do this for winter wheat and barley, which is quite slow growing. And we have winter wheat and barley here. It's a huge crop. In the, both are huge crops in the UK. Um, I think there's been a big shift towards genetic improvement rather than uh, working on agricultural technique um, in the way that agriculture is moving in the UK. And um, so I'm not, I'm not sure how easy it would be to implement something like this but I think there'd definitely be potential for it because it's so comparable in conditions to Japan. At the very least it'd be easier to sell a crop which is being pressed rather than a crop which is say GM which has much more stringent uh, regulations on it. Yeah definitely. Okay so from what I think I've heard so far just ask answer me this should I start using a rolling pin on my houseplants? <laughs> um, probably your houseplants are not the right type of plant. <laughs> This is what people ask me all the time. Every time I tell them what I'm doing, people ask for advice on how much they should be stroking or squishing their houseplants. Um, This really has to happen at at the seedling stage. Um, And, yeah, it's only done... This sort of squishing technique is only done really for grain crops that I know of. Um, Although garden centres and things, when they're growing tomato plants and things like that and they want to keep them short they will stroke them using machinery which is a similar technique so 
you could you could do this on your your plants at home. Maybe don't squish them. Go for a gentle stroke and see how that goes. <laughs> Not a. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, thank you. Well, your work you mentioned your work especially works in climate change. You're working in agriculture, and this coincides with your life outside the lab as well. Yeah. So I'm quite involved in campaigning for climate justice. Last year, I was involved in coordinating a successful campaign to get the Edinburgh Science Festival to stop being sponsored by fossil fuels. They used to be sponsored by um, Exxon and Total. They've decided to drop that sponsorship on ethical grounds now. Um, I'm also, as part of Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, I've been involved in running workshops and outreach events to teach young people about climate change and how they can get involved in activism around climate change. How how do you punish for activism alongside your research? Like, where do you find the time? So I'm just very busy. I'm having to step back a bit from that now as I move into the third year of my PhD. But through the work, some of the work I've been doing with with outreach and training and things like that, there's loads of great new people involved in the climate movement. Also, there's been so much that's happened in the climate movement in the past year, and it's really expanded. So there's plenty of great people continuing that work. So I can focus a bit more on my research. Excellent. Uh, does, is this why you chose your research in the first place, why you chose to work in plant sciences, like to have an effect not only through activism, but for your research as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was just really interested in plant science during my undergrad, so there was definitely that aspect. I, I'd love plants and everything about how they grow. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to tie my research into some sort of real-world impact, and I think that climate change is the biggest challenge we're facing at the moment, so anything we can do through our research to help us tackle the problem of climate change is really important. Oh, excellent, thank you. Uh, only one more question from me. Uh, would you say you're creative? Some people like to think there's a split between being academic, being studious, and being creative and artful. But I understand you're in a band. Yes. Um, so I, I definitely, I definitely think you can be creative and academic. I almost went, I almost went to art school and then I did science instead. But yeah, I'm in a band. I'm in a feminist punk band with a name far too rude to say on this podcast. I mean, let's go for it and see what happens. Uh, yeah, I'm in a band called Fingering at the Disco. Yeah, we'll see if we can air that. That <laughs> uh, is a yeah. What so? How long have you? What do you play, and how long have you been playing for? Um, I play the bass. I've only been playing for six months because, in punk, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you done any gigs yet? Yeah, we have gigs quite often. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. There's a really nice, wholesome, welcoming music scene in Edinburgh. But does that does that help you with research as well? Does it a creative outlet or creative practice? help think help you as a person it's a creative outlet i find it very relaxing um yeah yeah, it's a nice way to unwind okay well i believe it's something for today thank you tara for your time and for a lovely discussion about stamp site stroking plants uh thank you as well dear listeners for listening to biopod the official podcast from the school of biological sciences here at the university of edinburgh Scotch whiskey. When you hear this name, do you imagine a crackling fire, flickering candlelight, and golden liquid swirling around a tulip glass?
do you think of the Scottish Highlands and of tradition passed down over centuries? Yes, we can look at Scotch whisky's past steeped in noble tradition, but scientists are also looking to the future for ways in which Scotch whisky and its byproducts can be used as environmentally friendly alternatives to oil and to feed livestock. The idea of whisky being an alternative is nothing new, as whisky was first produced as an alternative to winemaking. When monks travelled from Europe to the British Isles and up north to Scotland, they brought a vast knowledge of winemaking with them. But with little access to grapes, monks used rain-soaked barley to distill an early form of whisky. As they say, today's rain is tomorrow's dram. Official recording of distilling was in 1494 when Friar John Corr of Lindor Abbey in Fife was commissioned by the king to make aqua vitae, Latin for water of life. The Gallic equivalent is whiskaba, from which whiskey takes its name. But is it whiskey ending in an ey, or is it whiskey with just the y? In Scotland, whiskey is spelt with just the y, and over in Ireland, the Irish spell whiskey with the ey. Scotch is undeniably Scottish. It's their national drink and Scotland's largest export, providing £5.5 billion in gross value added to the UK economy annually. The whisky distilling process yields significant byproducts, and Scotch whisky distillers are using eco friendly options to reduce their environmental impacts. Currently, spent grains left over from the malting process are sold to cattle farmers as a protein rich feed for their animals. Other byproducts, including pot, ale, and spent lees, are returned to the environment after they are treated to remove copper and other environmentally toxic chemicals. Whiskey waste is also being used to fuel cars. Celtic Renewables Limited was founded by Dr. Martin Tanyi in 2012. Tanyi and his team at Edinburgh Napier University's Biofuel Research Centre produce biobutanol from pot, ale, and draft, those whiskey making byproducts mentioned earlier. Biobutanol can be pumped directly into cars without adjustment to the engine. Celtic Renewables sourced the pot, ale, and draft from Talabadi Distillery, which is located in Black, between Perth and Stirling. This biobutanol is produced by microbial fermentation using an adaptation of ABE fermentation first developed in 1910 by Chaim Weizmann, Israel's first president. Salmon are growing plump and pink on whiskey waste too. An Edinburgh startup called MyAlgae is producing bioprotein to feed farm salmon. MyAlgae uses waste from the whiskey distilling process to grow marine microalgal protein, which is rich in omega-3, a nutritious feed for farm salmon. The company was founded by Douglas Martin whilst he was still a master's student at the University of Edinburgh between 2015 and 2016. His idea was supported by grants from the Edinburgh Innovation Service for students. Two Edinburgh alumni also work for My Algae. 
This algal bioprotein is an environmentally friendly and economic alternative which is used to feed Scottish fish farms which produce over 160,000 tonnes of salmon every year. Prior to this, many fish were fed pellets made of fish meal, oil, grains, soy and vitamins, as well as poultry byproducts. My algae eliminates this waste and instead uses whisky waste to cultivate a completely sustainable fish feed. This microalgae is grown in fermenting vessels and constantly monitored to support optimal algal growth. So there you have it. Here's the story of whisky, discovered by monks as an alternative to wine, now being used as an alternative to petrol and fish feed, with biological spin-offs towards a zero-waste economy. No wonder the Scots call whisky the water of life. So that concludes today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you want to hear more, our podcast is available on Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Biopod Edinburgh or on Facebook. And until next time, folks, stay curious and keep your eyes peeled for the next episode. See you next month. <laughs>